1 Peter 1. We're going to be in verses 10 through 12 this morning. So if you would read along with me. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So for the past several weeks, we've been studying the book of First Peter as a church. And uh, already, just in our few weeks of studying through this book, we've already begun to notice a few major themes that are being brought to the surface. In particular, themes like suffering and various trials and having hope in the midst of these sufferings and various trials, ultimately rooted and grounded in Christ. But uh, even though that theme is pervasive throughout, I think that if we were to back up a little bit and look, of all, look at all of 1 Peter, we might see a theme that, that stands a little bit taller even in the book and even encompasses this idea of suffering and trials and having hope in the midst of them. And that is the theme of salvation, the theme of salvation. So just consider the first nine verses that we've already studied so far as a church. Now, verse three, blessed be the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Verse four tells us that we have an imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance. Verse five says that we're being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And so already we're having all sorts of salvation type of language being employed. Just in these first nine verses uh, of first Peter, we can see salvation being emphasized over and over again. Our attention is drawn here. There is a certain sort of gospel centeredness to these nine verses and really to all of first Peter. Salvation is in view. And so then we come to our passage, verses 10 through 12 here this morning. And how does verse 10 open up? Concerning this salvation. What are we talking about this morning? What's the point of the passage we're going to be looking about? Where are we going to be spending our time this morning? Salvation. Concerning this salvation. Once again, even though we've already spent nine verses dealing with this, Peter is taking us back to the idea of salvation. Peter wants, to know, wants us to know that even though we can suffer with hope, even though we have uh, been proclaimed to us that we have an eternal, unperishing inheritance, that this salvation is something that needs to be re-emphasized over and over again. Peter will not simply allow us to move ahead. We can't just now get to the more interesting things uh, or the more thought-provoking things. No, Peter wants to make sure that we get this. This is too good, too important for us to just allow it to be an introduction to the book. No, we have to go back to this salvation. This is a first thing. This is the main thing. This is what we are dealing with here this morning. And so that's what we're gonna be spending our time considering looking into this morning, salvation. I have one main point 
uh, for these verses, and that is a fairly simple point. We have a great, great salvation in Christ. We have a great salvation in Christ. And so my hope is, is that everything that is said, everything that we consider, all the songs that we're singing, all of this will be pointing back to the glory of the salvation that we have in Christ. And we would be overwhelmed, undone with this salvation. And so Peter is taking us back to this topic and this theme of salvation. And, and I believe as he's doing this, he's offering us a sort of ode to salvation. He's wanting us to see the wonder, the glory of it. He wants us to sit in this salvation, to rest in the salvation, wrestle with it, gaze upon it. The salvation stands at the center of this passage. And so it'll stand at the center of our time this morning. And the question kind of becomes why? That's my son. Why? Why should we be consider, uh, spending our time on salvation? Why does Peter take us back to this topic uh, or theme of salvation? So many reasons. So many reasons. We could spend our entire morning just uh, responsively giving reasons why we should spend our time talking about salvation. But I want to offer uh, one really important reason why I think Peter is taking us back to salvation. And that's found in verse 13. If you would just look at verse 13, very next verse. I'm not going to preach next week's sermon, but the first word, therefore. Therefore. In order for us to get what verse 13 is all about, in order for us to get uh, what the rest of 1 Peter is about, uh, holy living, suffering for doing good, uh, wrestling well and living uh, in light of our marriages to the glory of God, sexual purity, all the things that are going to be coming up in 1 Peter, in order for us to get that stuff, we need to have this gospel and salvation foundation laid in place. We cannot set our hope fully on the grace of God that is ours in Christ, like verse 13 tells us to, if we don't know the grace of God or if we don't see it as beautiful and worth setting our hopes and attention on. And so that's what we're going to be doing today, considering how great of a salvation we have in Christ. We're going to do that uh, by looking at three uh, subpoints, three things within these verses that I think point back to this one main point, how great is our salvation. Peter doesn't want to tell us every single thing or every single reason why our salvation is great. It's not all encompassing here, but he at least gives us three reasons why we have a great, great salvation. And so those three things are where we're, where we're going to spend our time. So the first of those reasons why we have a great, great salvation is, is that this salvation was predicted. This salvation was predicted. I think we see that in verses 10 and 11, so read those with me, please. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of, of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So Peter begins talking about this salvation by taking us all the way back to the prophets of the Old Testament. So we're talking about people like Micah and Joel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and if I'm honest, this seems to me to be a little bit of a strange move. Why would Peter take us to people in the Old Testament who were before Christ? If he's wanting to emphasize the greatness of our salvation in Christ, then why would we be going to the Old Testament? What does Jeremiah know about being in Christ? And how can he help me understand my great salvation? 
Well, Peter tells us that even back in the Old Testament, even before Christ, Christ was at work. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was causing these prophets, people like Micah and Joel, to prophesy about the grace or the salvation or the deliverance that Israel and us would eventually receive. Not only was the Holy Spirit revealing this sort of future grace, but he was giving specific revelation. He wasn't just telling the the prophets that we would be delivered or that we would be saved in a general sort of way, like we would be saved from Egypt. No, he gives specifics. Verse 11 says that the Spirit moved these prophets to predict not just deliverance, but the sufferings and the subsequent glories of this person, the Christ. In other words, by the Spirit, the prophets were able to grasp and proclaim that salvation would come through the sufferings and glory of a person, the Christ. And so ultimately, the cross and the resurrection were even in view in the Old Testament. Even though they don't show up explicitly, they were in view even in the prophets. And so God, while not giving all the pieces of the puzzle, not telling us everything that we needed to know, not telling us exactly what was going to happen, God, not giving all of the pieces of the puzzle, was progressively revealing his redemptive plan, the hope of glory, the gospel. And so God was at least providing the borders or the outline of the puzzle so that there might be a sort of gospel outline presented to us. And and this sort of thing uh, we see throughout the prophets, there's an anticipation or a pointing forward towards Christ. There's there's a gospel outline to it. But really this is going on throughout all of the Old Testament. We can go all the way back to the beginning and see an anticipation and a pointing forward towards Christ. Genesis 3 takes us there. The, The seed of the woman would come and he would crush the serpent. And we can look at 1 John and we can recognize that the seed of this woman was in fact the Christ, Jesus, who came to destroy the works of the devil, who trampled over sin, death, and Satan at the cross and in his resurrection. So even back in the very, very beginning, there was an anticipation or pointing forward towards Christ. And this is going on all throughout the Old Testament. There is a looking forward to Christ. And so all of the Old Testament, including the prophets, is offering shadows and types and illusions, all these different things that are moving us forward, that are lifting our eyes to the deliverance that would eventually come in Jesus. So to sum this up, Peter is telling us that there is a unity amongst the Old and the New Testaments. The Old Testament is not this separate thing. There's not a God of the Old Testament. There is a unified story here. There is a grand redemptive plan. Even in the Old Testament, Christ and his gospel and therefore salvation in Christ were in view. Our salvation was predicted. And so God was at work in the Old Testament. He was moving all things forward towards Christ. We quote a guy named Charles Spurgeon here at Grace pretty often. Uh, Sermons, sometimes he's up on the screen and we read things that he's written Uh, Interestingly, he actually died 124 years ago today. So this is the anniversary of this great man of God's death. Well, Charles Spurgeon got this idea well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon famously said that no matter where you were in England, there was always a road that leads to London. 
No matter where you are in England, no matter if you're in the countryside, no matter if you're in the city, no matter if you're in another city, there's always a road that leads to London. Now, I'm not uh, super versed in the geography of England, so I'm not going to try to explain what that might look like. But if I think about Southern California, I could say there's always a road in Southern California that leads to Los Angeles. If we just think about our church here, so we're on the corner of an Imperial and Santa Gertrudis, we can get to Los Angeles, the city, right? We can go down Imperial and we can get on the five or we can go down Santa Gertrudis and go to La Mirada and Beach and, the, and go to the five or the 91 or the four. There's so many different ways for us to get to LA. The idea though is, is no matter where we are in Southern California, there's always a road to Los Angeles. And so Spurgeon says, just as there is always a road that leads to London, no matter where you are in all of scripture, there is always a road that leads to Christ. And he would even get in trouble because when he talked about preaching, he would say, if there wasn't a road to Christ, then he would jump over the hedges, run through a field and make sure that he got to Christ. Well, we want to be careful because we don't want to say that, that it's not important for us to spend time in the Old Testament, and see what's happening historically and, and recognizing that God is at work in Israel and doing specific and important things. But at the end of the day, we can recognize that all of scripture is anticipating and leading us forward to Christ. In the Bible, in all of this, we're seeing God's redemptive plan being revealed. God has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and he has set out on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And this mission is even seen back in the prophets. So I want you to see this. Our salvation was predicted. And I think this is really, really important for us to get for a variety of reasons. In this, we see the wisdom of God. We learn uh, how to read our Bibles. We learn hermeneutics. But I think there's a one specific thing that I think is really important for us to, to get this morning. We have to recognize that Peter is writing this to Christians who are facing various trials, people who are in the midst of suffering or who will be suffering in the future. And he wants to encourage these readers by letting them know that this salvation was predicted. Well, how is this encouraging? How does this idea that salvation was predicted encourage Christians? Well, it helps us, I believe it helps us to see that the gospel was not a mistake. The gospel was not a mistake. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. The plan from the beginning was for Jesus to go to the cross. The plan from the beginning was for Christ to save sinners like us. We might be tempted to think that if our worlds are so off kilter, then maybe God really isn't in control. Maybe he's lost grip on this world. Maybe he wasn't really meant to go to the cross, but the New Testament is kind of picking up the pieces and it's making beauty from ashes. And if maybe that happened, maybe we can look at our own lives and we could see how dysfunctional it is. We could see the sin that clings so closely to us and we can wonder if God really isn't in control and maybe our lives are a mistake. Imagine what Peter must have felt. We, we studied the book of Mark before coming into 1 Peter and Peter messed up so bad after having proclaimed Christ as the Christ and the Son of God. After having been uh, uh, exalted because of this and told he was the, uh, the rock and all of these different things, Peter then goes and denies Jesus three times. 
What must, what must that have felt like for him? Do you think that there might have been something there where he thought maybe God made a mistake? There's no way he should have called me. I failed so terribly. He was undone with grief and angst. Did Peter's trials and do our trials fall outside of the bounds of God's sovereign reign? No. Jesus' sufferings and subsequent glories, his death and resurrection, the salvation that comes as a result, this was God's plan from the beginning. As one pastor said, you were not loved for just one bloody moment uh, of sacrifice in history. You have been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of the Father and the Son who save sinners who trust in him. There is a grand redemptive work being carried out. It's been being carried out from the beginning. The Old Testament was anticipating Christ's work of redemption. And now we can look back at Christ's work, recognizing that we too are caught up in this redemptive plan. Our hope is in something secure and steadfast and true and holy. If we trust in Christ, then we are trusting in that thing that is completely safe and secure. And so persevere in this faith. We have a glorious salvation, a good, good salvation. And I think we could see that just in the fact that our salvation was predicted. It was rooted in history. It was, it was testified to before it ever even came to fruition. And, and, and this is telling us that we have a great salvation. But Peter doesn't want to stop there. He wants to further emphasize this point. We have a great, great salvation. We see that in the salvation was predicted. We also see it in that this salvation is uniquely ours in Christ. It is uniquely ours in Christ. And so if we look at verse 12, I believe we'll see this. So the prophets predicted this salvation and it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So verse 12 begins by telling us the prophets who had the corner pieces of the salvation that comes as a result of the gospel revealed to them, did not have these things revealed to them for their own sake. Instead, God in his grace revealed these things then that the church in Asia Minor, in Cappadocia, in Laodicea, and in La Mirada might receive this salvation. It might be built up and edified by this salvation. Peter is telling us that the prophets, some of the greatest men who ever lived, and really all of the, the people in the Old Testament, we're talking about Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and the list goes on and on. These men experienced shadows of this salvation. They got glimpses of this salvation. But us, you and me, we get the real thing. We get to experience the salvation fully. If we are in Christ, then Romans 8 is true of us. There is no condemnation for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If we're in Christ, then Galatians 4 is true of us that we have been redeemed from sin. We have been justified. We have peace with God and we can cry out, Abba, Father. First Peter 1 is true of us. We've been saved to an everlasting, eternal hope. We have an imperishable, undefiled inheritance in Christ. This is for us. 
This is the reality that we now experience if we have believed in Jesus. The list can go on and on about the results and realities of salvation that we now experience because we are in Christ. This salvation that was prophesied and predicted is uniquely and gloriously ours. The idea being uh, presented here, I believe, reminds me of one of my least favorite seasons of life. And that would be my waiting tables season of life. Uh, I really dislike waiting tables. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. But my sophomore and junior years of college, I waited tables at this fancy upscale steak and seafood restaurant. And during this time of my life, I was not doing very well financially. Uh, And this, you could see this in how I ate. I ate basically nothing but eggs, cheeseburgers off of the dollar menu from Wendy's. And if I was really fortunate, then I would get a meal from my school's cafeteria and I would, it was all you can eat. And I would, I would make sure that I got my money's worth out of that meal. But when I was at work at this restaurant, things were a bit different. You see, I worked it out so that I eat really good when I was at work. So I'd be bussing tables, for instance, and I would go and I'd realize that there were a bunch of leftover shrimp that hadn't been touched. You know what I would do? Without shame, I would eat every last one of those things. (laughs) I worked it out with the chefs at the restaurant that if they uh, burned a piece of steak or a piece of fish, they were supposed to throw those away, but I worked it out so that they would kind of flag me and I would sprint over with a to-go box and they would drop it in my to-go box and I'd go and hide that somewhere in the back so that I could eat it later. If there was leftover bread, that was mine. If we made too many baked potatoes at the end of the night, mine. I ate really good. I ate stuffed shrimp with lobster cream sauce and I ate steak and, and grouper and, and shrimp. And we had these brownies, these dessert brownies, and you'd put a, a Hershey bar over them and then ice cream. And I would literally cut off the ends of them when they were left over and I would eat these pieces of dessert. (laughs) I ate really, really good. But the reason I share this is because I want you to see that even though I ate good, well, I ate them in the context of serving. I ate them in the context of serving. I ate what was left over. I ate what was rejected. I tasted, but not fully. My job was not to eat the food. My job was to serve the customers of the restaurant. The customers that I served, they got the full-on dining experience. They had me come up to their table, sometimes with an iron shirt, and, and offer them the specials and offer them wine and take their order. And then they would have a, a well-cooked steak presented to them. And they would be able to sit at the booth with their friends and their family. They got the dining experience. That dining experience wasn't for me. This isn't a perfect illustration, but we see something similar happening in our passage. The prophets tasted the gospel. They glimpsed it from afar, but they weren't to get the full gospel dining experience. That was for us. In Christ, we get the perfect steak. We get all the sides. We get the appetizer. We get the corner booth with the good lighting. We get the live band. We get it all. 
you and me. We get this glorious salvation. It is uniquely ours in Christ. Ours. Not the prophets, ours. Do you see how privileged we are? This is incredible. But the question arises, how did this salvation come to us? The prophets pointed forward to it. They anticipated it, but that obviously wasn't enough. We see that testified throughout the New Testament. How did this salvation come to us? Well, God, in his loving kindness, raised up certain people that we might receive this good news. Verse 12 says that these things have now been announced to us by those who preached the good news. God raised up apostles to preach the good news, the gospel, that we might fully taste and take hold of the salvation that is ours in Christ. So our salvation comes not because we are so smart or because we earned it or because we've somehow snagged it out of the air like you would snag a line drive. No, the salvation that is ours in Christ has come to us because faithful men and women have preached this gospel to us, proclaimed this good news. They preached in the power of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit empowered their proclamation that people like you and me might have our hearts set ablaze and we might believe in Jesus. And so as we consider what this means for us, what would application look like, I want to urge you to remember that this salvation is uniquely ours and it's uniquely ours because of gospel proclamation, because of the preaching of the word. Therefore, let us be those who offer this salvation, this unique, glorious salvation to others through gospel proclamation. As we consider the glorious salvation that is ours, let us not hide this away. Let us be so overwhelmed, so undone that we are in Christ, that we get the full dining experience, that we can't help but go and herald this to a lost and dying world. Let us not be content to go to the nicest restaurant in town and eat there by ourselves. No, let us bring our friends, let us bring our family and let's feast together, dine together in community. This this salvation is uniquely ours. We get to dine at this restaurant. Let us also be about this, this salvation being uniquely others and bringing them into the fold as well. We have a great salvation, a great salvation, one that was predicted by the prophets, one that was preached by the apostles, one that is uniquely ours in Christ. But Peter wants to further impress upon us this point. And so he wants to go big, really, really big. And so this leads to our final point. This salvation, this great salvation is the object of cosmic attention. The object of cosmic attention. So we see all of this stuff about the, prophet, or about the salvation being predicted. We see it preached. We see that it's ours. And then we get this little tiny phrase at the end of verse 12. Concerning this salvation, things which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. This is one of the most interesting and astounding phrases. It's this little addition. It's almost like an afterthought. It's something that we could so easily gloss over or look at and say, that's weird, and and kind of move on. Angels long to look. But once again, Peter is reminding us of the greatness of our salvation we have in Christ. He's saying that it is cosmic in proportion. 
Why is this salvation so great? Even the angels long to look into it. Notice the word long here. We might more literally translate that as obsess. Angels obsessed over this salvation. They obsessed to look into it, to behold this salvation. They were obsessed with glimpsing this salvation. And this is all present tense, meaning that they didn't just want to look into this salvation every once in a while, or or maybe they would turn on their TV every once in a while and glimpse it and then move on to the next thing. No, they were continually longing longing to look into this. They were always obsessed with looking into this salvation. Their eyes are fixed on this salvation, on the gospel. They look at the gospel and the salvation that comes as a result like you would look at a fire or a piece of art, like you would look at the Grand Canyon. You you gaze into it, you fix your eyes on it, you get lost in it. They obsess over it. And this should astound us. This should overwhelm us because these angels, they aren't recipients of the gospel. They have no need for redemption like us. They aren't brought into God's family by grace through faith like us in the same sort of way. In a way, they are outsiders. Who are the recipients of this gospel and the salvation that comes as a result? Us. We get to experience the thing that the prophets predicted that they didn't get to fully taste. We get that. We get the thing that angels long to look into. That is ours in Christ. This salvation of cosmic proportions is yours and it is mine. If this is true, and I think we need to really slow down here. I think we need to really think about this and consider this. If this incredible salvation, the salvation that angels long to look into, if it is really ours in Christ, and this has to affect the way that we live. It has to affect the way that we live. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, we follow the angel's example. We follow the angel's example. We are too long to look into this salvation as well. We are to obsess or long over the gospel and the salvation that comes as a result. Here we have the heavenly army of God and we learn that they are interested in salvation. It's not telling us they're interested in botany or they're interested in uh, space exploration. No, they're focused in on the gospel and the salvation that comes as a result. They concern themselves with Christ and his gospel. They concern themselves with how salvation is extended to mankind. They concern themselves with how or what it means to know Christ by grace through faith, even though it isn't for them. I picture it like planets orbiting the sun. The planets aren't just drifting off into things that are more interesting. No, they're always circling the sun. They're always focused on that one thing, continually centering around it. And I think we need to hear this. I think we need to hear this because we are so prone to moving past the gospel. The gospel in some ways is so simple that we can easily fall into the trap of thinking, I know that, I know that. I can move on from that. I've got it. I've got it. Now let me get to the interesting things. The things that first Peter deals with. Let me get on to holy living. Let me get on to sexual purity. Let me get on to how, what does it mean to wrestle through this stuff with my wife, gender roles. Let me get on to these various things. 
And we forget how glorious the gospel is and how necessary it is for all of life. The prophets obsessed over this gospel. It says they searched and inquired carefully about the things relating to the the sufferings of the Christ and his subsequent glories. The angels obsessed to look into this. You know what I'm obsessed with? College football recruiting. This week is signing day for uh, college football or uh, eventual college football players. And, and, and I care so much about Alabama football that, that I check my phone two dozen times a day looking into what recruits Alabama is going to sign. I know the heights and the weights of every one of our recruits. I know what schools they go to all across the United States, high schools. I know their, their strengths and their weaknesses. That's what I obsess over. Do you see that there's a little bit of a disconnect here between what the angels long to look into and what I long to look into? (laughs) And so let it, we all have these things. So let us, let us be convicted by this and compelled to long to look into that which matters. In our passage, we see the prophets inquiring carefully. We see the angels obsessing over this. Let us do so as well. The prophets and the angels show us to never move past the gospel. It's too good to move past. Instead, let us slow down. Let us fix our eyes on this. Let us wrestle with this. Let us meditate on this. Let us be about the gospel and the salvation that is ours in Christ. My hope as a result of our time spent in the word this morning is that we would be overwhelmed, undone with the glory of our salvation. That it would encourage us that that we would be excited about this salvation. I I hope that you're seeing the greatness of our salvation in these verses, but I also hope that you're being compelled to look into these things, to wrestle with the word, to go to God in prayer and ask him to, to help us to understand the depth of things like the gospel. It's worth it. And, And so rather than, uh, closing, telling a story or doing something like that. I think this is one of those things where we really need to stop and pray. I think that God so desires that we would get this mentally, that we'd have a good understanding of what the gospel is and how it affects our life. But I think this is one of those passages where it really needs to get to our hearts. And so what I'd like for us to do is just spend the next few moments praying, uh, responding corporately to God's word and lifting up prayers So I want to invite several of you to pray. And I really want to ask you to pray um, in two ways. First, uh, let us offer up thanksgiving to the Lord. Praise the Lord for this salvation that is ours. And then two, let's pray that the Lord would so move in our hearts that we would appreciate this salvation. The reality is, as many of us, as many of us, we can see this salvation, we can see how awesome it is, and yet our hearts don't really do much with that. And and so we need to have our affections changed. We need to have our hearts set ablaze. And so let's pray that we would actually appreciate this salvation that is ours in Christ and that the Lord would continually be doing this and compelling us to look into these things as we move on from here.